Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 190. What's it like to sit down for your first developer sprint at a conference? How do you find an appropriate issue to work on as a new open source contributor? This week on the show, author and software engineer Stephanie Mullen is here to discuss starting to contribute to open source projects. Stephanie is a data scientist and software engineer on Bloomberg's security data science team. She recently wrote an article titled Five Ways to Get Started in Open Source. We discuss finding ways to contribute that fit your interests and developer skills. And we dig into the experience of participating in community sprints at a conference. Stephanie is the author of Hands-On Data Analysis with Pandas. We also discuss the different processes between writing technical articles and authoring a book. This episode is sponsored by Intel, providing Edge AI reference kits. Are you building AI apps with popular models like YOLO V8 or PADM? If so, check out intel.com slash edge AI to get open source code snippets and helpful guides. Just go to intel.com slash edge AI. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Stephanie, it's been a, quite a while I've been trying to get you on the show. I know that we've talked at PyCon a couple times now, but um, I'm very happy to have you here starting the, the new year with talking about working in open source. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Christopher, and thanks for your patience as we tried to schedule this. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, it's been very much a back and forth. <laughs> so I was talking to you before we started that we discussed this topic briefly when your article came out on Medium and Christopher kind of brought it up as a discussion topic and I was very interested in it. But I was hoping that we can get a lot more of your own kind of personal background on it and kind of dig into it. You you wrote an article on Medium called Five Ways to Get Started in Open Source. I think the personal story behind it, I think, is going to be some of the more fascinating stuff. And so I wanted to start with a question that actually you have very early on in your article, which is about how a lot of people were coming up to you and saying, hey, I'd like to get involved in open source. And I'm wondering, like, what, what kind of backgrounds are those people have? And what was your experience with that? Is that the reason that you kind of decided to write the whole article in the first place? Yeah, so it was definitely the reason behind it. What I tried to do is whenever I'm asked something repeatedly, <laughs> it's kind of like the bells go off, right? Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. realize, okay, this should be somewhere written down because clearly people want to refer to this knowledge. Not necessarily so that I can say to them, just go read the article. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's more so that it can reach more people, right? Yeah, yeah. So the people that are not bothering to ask the question can find it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And the there was actually two people in particular who, funny enough, did remember our conversation about this. But I was at a book signing in 
uh, Boston at the ODSC uh, conference. Okay. Which is a data science conference. And so I was doing a book signing and some people came up to at me. I think when I had run out of the books, but they had already heard of the book. And I think one of them had already read it and I'm signing it and they're asking just questions about my background and they're very new to data science. They were also new to Python. They're tra- changing careers. It was a whole lot of stuff going on. Wow. But the topic of open source came up and that I had mentioned that I had done a little bit and how it's a great way to just gain more experience in general, see how different things work, build a portfolio. Yeah. And so they kind of were asking, well, how could I get started if I'm so new? What can I do? Yeah. And I kind of went through like, well, I think the best place to start would be doing something like documentation. That's something you can use. You're learning it. You know, from a learner's perspective, what's not easy to read. Yeah. And then I think I was in the airport. I had a connecting flight. I think maybe it was not that conference, but a different, I maybe coming back from PyCon US and I just outlined this article and I was like, okay, there's clearly these five ideas and I've done all of these on different projects. And then I think this is that, that article that I would be able to have to refer people to, or they could refer to later. So yeah, I talked to them, but you don't always remember exactly everything that was said <laughs> and examples and what to look for. You know, you're not taking notes when I'm talking to you. So I wanted them to be able to have, and other people too, to be able to have that, that resource. Uh, it did take quite a bit after that to actually complete the article. Okay. It stayed in a draft form <laughs> or a skeleton of these are the five things and like ideas of which stories from my participation that I would bring up. But were there particular sticking points that things that were making it harder to complete? Time. <laughs> time. <Finding it>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's always a, the, the toughest. It's been a busy year for, for you, right? <laughs> it has been very busy. But I sometimes yeah. find that when you're, at least when you're traveling, you kind of have to figure out, okay, what can I do with this time? If I'm sure. able to f- focus, then I will try to get something creative done like that. But it's it's definitely a challenge to, to, to get into that space. And it, and it becomes more of like, okay, maybe I'll just write this one paragraph today. And then like the next bit I'll work on tomorrow. And putting it into smaller bits did make it easier. Um, and then I wanted to have some other people read the article and refine a couple of things. And there's a funny story behind that, but I won't, I won't uh, share that bit. It's kind of an inside <laughs> joke at this point, as far as the, the title goes. And okay, yeah, so then once uh, I shared it out there, I think Medium picked it up very quickly. And I remember being on a different trip and all of a sudden, like, my phone was going crazy, all these claps and all this. I'm like, wow, what's going on here? And then oh, it showed nice. me that it had promoted it. So it's clearly people from all walks, any any kind of experience, even a little bit of Python or other languages. It's kind of applies to really anyone who's interested. Yeah, it seems fairly universal that way. That yeah, I'm intrigued a little bit about the writing process and how that might be different from writing your book and writing an article. And it sounds like in the case of writing an article, maybe it's something that you can do a little more in a piecemeal way that you can kind of, you know, while you're traveling, you can kind of poke at it. But it's, it's nice that you have people that you can kind of have uh, pseudo editors, if you will, uh, people <laughs> to review it. That seems like a really handy thing. Are there other differences in, in the way that you approach writing a, an article? Um, I think I allow the articles to maybe, well, at least this one in particular, to be a little more on the personal side with personal stories, I feel like sure. just sharing this and not having those stories, it's really not the same 
impact of an article and just telling people, Oh, here's how you can do it. Just look for this. That really doesn't speak to people as closely as like, here's an exact example of how this happened and how someone was able to make this strategy work for them. Yeah. I feel like with the book, it's more of a, you're teaching a concept. So maybe the, the voice that you use changes Mm. and even across articles, it's kind of a struggle to find what is your voice in that certain context. (laughs) I'm working on a couple other articles at the moment, which do have a little bit more of the personal voice, which is something I'm trying to move towards as far as my articles versus the book being books being more formal and articles being a little bit of me in there. So people, you know, can, can get a little bit of who I am as a person in addition to that. So it's like a friend's talking to you or sharing a story with you about how you can do it. Yeah. It comes across that way. And I think that's received a little better. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Without diving too deep into everything in there, because I'd love people to go back and just read it as a, as a really great resource as it is. But what was your introduction to contributing? We'll talk about a little bit of the different methods you know, what was your first sort of introduction and you know, why, why did you decide to, to do it? So that's also a interesting story as well. Um, I mentioned a little bit of that in the article. Yeah. But the what actually happened was, and I've done a few other things before this, but this is what I see as the first contribution. Yeah. I was doing my master's degree in computer science and I was doing this alongside of work. So when I was studying for an exam, there'd be times where I was just not feeling studying and I just needed some other outlet (laughs) to do something. I happened to be in front of the computer and I had thought about in the past, so it'd be cool to contribute something to open source that was actual, like a code contribution, a feature or something. And I kind of had an idea of like how I would do it. I was never really like unsure about how to get started. It was more of like finding the opportunity okay. and at the right time. So right place, right time type of thing. Sure. I had not done sprints at that point and I was looking through Seaborn's issues. Mm. So Seaborn, I already knew how it worked, how it was built on top of matplotlib. And so I had a good familiarity with matplotlib, which means I therefore had good familiarity with internals of, of Seaborn at the time. Seaborn has uh, changed their whole logic now, but at the time it was, I was a lot more familiar with uh, how it worked. And so I was trying to procrastinate, looking through the issues, which is more manageable on a repo of that size, where it's you know mainly one maintainer. So I saw a an issue nearly at the end of the entire backlog that was referencing wanting to add a horizontal and vertical reference lines essentially to grid type plots okay and it actually in the title used like ax h line ax v line which are the matplotlib equivalents and i was like i know exactly what those are i know how those work and this is just a grid so it's probably just a loop over the internal to get the axes and call this and i was like, okay i can do this so i i dropped a note i was like okay are you still interested in doing this? Cause it was like <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe a year or two. The issue was maybe, I, mean, I guess maybe a year old at that point. And it was put in by the creator of the library, but it was oh, okay. untouched. So I was like, okay, you still interested in this. I don't want to obviously waste. It's very much like a t- 
to do uh, type of thing. Exactly. In sense. Exactly. Okay. But clearly it had not been super important. Right. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I made sure he was still interested and I poked around just out of curiosity on my side. I'm like, okay, so how would this even be done? I've never, I had never at that point actually tried to grab the axes out of a, a, a seaborne result. So I played around with it. I was like, this is, this is exactly as easy as I thought it was. Let me, let me do this. And then at that point I had to figure out like for the first time writing tests in someone else's test suite or even just writing the tests in general. And how do you test visualizations of, or even yeah, a bigger monster yeah. and going through the process of, Oh, we should have examples and these examples should be changed now that we have this. And I made it for one of the grid classes. And then he's actually, this would be great to have on the other grid too. Hmm. And coming up with the name and the interface and the process of going back and forth. It took, it took a while to get to the point where it was merged. And I was like, oh, good, done. And I like literally thought of it as like, I checked that off the list. Don't need to yeah. do that again. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a lot of work. And I was like, okay, I did it kind of thing. And I think then the release actually happened. So this was maybe another few months afterwards. Yeah. And I get a, a mention on Twitter from him. Okay. And I was like, that's weird. So I'm like, what is this? And so... Someone, and I, I don't remember the name of the person, but who has some sort of blog, saw the release notes and really liked that new ref line feature. Yeah, and yeah. was thanking the Seaborn creator for adding it and show, had an example showing how great this is. And the Seaborn creator is like, no, you should thank Stephanie. <laughs> and I was like, wow, like, look at this. And so I was like, okay, she's so something the one who that, did it. <laughs> exactly. So I, thought that was, I thought that was really nice. Yeah, it was very nice cool to for them see, to give you the shout out. That's very nice. Yeah. yeah. And it was nice to see someone was already using it and saw the value. And when I made my visualization uh, workshop, I show that in there because that's also why people now ask me about it. So I show right in the beginning before we dive into the visualization, before I show them a lot of how to work with Matplotlib, you know, on your own without relying on Pandas or some other library to start it for you. Yeah. I tell people, I'm like, Within an hour of this workshop, you can make this open source contribution. That's pretty cool. So I get, because I feel like people often make it seem harder in their heads than it actually is. Sure. And I like people to understand that it's not that complex, right? When you are able to see the intern on how things work, you know? That's cool. Yeah, I, lo I love that introduction to it because uh, it, in a way, can demystify it. Exactly. Like, you know, the you can do it too kind of thing. And I like that it sounds, based upon what you were just saying there, that there was some nice back and forth. It wasn't, you weren't creating it purely in a vacuum. You were able to kind of get some feedback as you went, which probably helped as you, you know, were new to this and kind of maybe unsure of like, okay, am I doing this right? And so forth. So that that's really nice. Sounds like a really positive experience. Yeah, and I, w I would say actually that the shout out on Twitter is probably what got me to do it again. I think afterwards I was like, <laughs> eh, I don't know. Yeah, but it, it, was, it was seeing that you actually made a significant impact and then that quickly. Yeah. And then even with the visualization workshop, another fun story I like to tell the attendees is like literally a couple slides after the one I just mentioned, I show this diagram from the Matplotlib docs and it's the anatomy of a figure. And the day... It was the day before I was going to present this workshop for the first time. I, Matplotlib had just made a new release. 
So I updated the code, make sure oh, I can show this new release in here. Yeah. And the code that, that generated that image now did not work properly. <laughs> so uh. the, they had a circle saying, here's the legend. But the legend automatically places itself, and it had now placed itself in a different spot. So the legend was in one spot, and the circle showing you that there was a legend there was not where the legend was. So I was able to quickly fix that in time because of the workshop. <laughs> so that was cool. Yeah. And since then, there have actually been maybe one or two more things that, because of the way I had to show it in the workshop, was challenging. That I went back to Matplotlib, and I was like, okay, how about we add this so that I can show this example easier? And we've tweaked some of the interfaces there, particularly bar plots, I think. Nice. I love visualizations and I feel like that would be a really great entry point for somebody like me. It's very, I don't want to say instantaneous, but in a way, you know, you get to really see what you're creating and and modifying. And and again, like you're talking about the legend right there. It's not like this bug that's going to appear late, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you're going to like discover it a week into something. It's like right away, you're like, that's not in the right spot. Um, And so it's something that feels like you get this feedback on the work that you're doing programming wise uh, a lot quicker. That's again, one, one of the reasons I like doing visualizations and kind of seeing them be built up from there. So I think if anybody's interested, then this might be a very interesting uh, entry point for them in some ways. And I will also say any any library that builds on top of another one that does yeah. these visualizations, there's probably plenty of bugs that haven't been found that can be fixed. <laughs> okay. I think almost all of my Pandas contributions have been around bugs in the plotting interface that sits on top of Matplotlib. Oh, interesting. So it's a good spot to, to poke around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you mentioned a couple benefits of sort of contributing in the sense that, you know, you got this sort of shout out. It's something that you can put on a resume. Hey, I've worked on this library, something that's sort of this nice feather in your cap when you do conferences or, you know, do talks and things like that. Say, um, oh, I've contributed on these particular things. Are are there other benefits that you feel from contributing? Oh, there's 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 plenty. I think Another big one is just seeing how people work asynchronously or in teams hmm. all over the world, different companies on a shared project okay. in the in like actual publicly. So a lot of times you work for a company, you have your private code bases, yes. you do things your company's way and you don't necessarily know how do people publish packages outside, like how do open source people work how do they publish packages how do they use github actions how do they organize their documentation host the documentation build the document like all (laughs) these things that you just never had to really think about and then it's a nice to get that exposure because if you do want to contribute to that or you do change companies you might have to learn some of these other tools yeah right so that that's a big thing getting better acquainted with the library it's very interesting how you're saying that because i feel like they're you're creating for a very different audience, this much wider audience, diverser audience, uh, lots of different backgrounds. You don't know what kind of background these people have when they just add your library. So the documentation is going to be need to be at a different level. The implementation and the naming of things, you know, it, it can't be just, uh, you know, X's and Y's and foos and bars. They, they need to be you know, really well designed in a way that that makes sense and so that i guess that's a different level that maybe an internal package maybe wouldn't have 
mean, also, it's just, just the processes. The whole thing really okay. can be entirely different down to the tools you use. So. All right. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so I, I would also say getting better acquainted with the library itself. So I have in the article, for example, if you're newer or you're learning a library, that doesn't mean you can't make contributions there. There's just, you can kind of just like point yourself at a certain area that you maybe you haven't seen yet or explored in that library. Okay. You get to learn about it. And then you also get to, to help, right? So you, you just get more understanding of what's going on underneath, which is also very beneficial for when you're trying to figure out why something doesn't work too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A nice highlight is also you kind of can control when a bug gets fixed, right? So if you find, uh... and I've had this happen, you keep coming across the same bug, you know, and they're like, it's still in this release. When will they fix this? Just go and <laughs> fix it yourself. And now it's fixed because it might be something that, yeah, they know it's, it's not working, but it's not the most important thing in the backlog. So oh, next release, oh, we'll, we'll get to it. Next release. It's not per se critical, but boy, exactly. it's bugging you. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, the public portfolio is a big thing. And then like just learning on the tools side. So maybe you use a certain editor at work, but you haven't tried this extension that everyone in the open source world is using that makes it uh, much easier. So you just learn kind of things that, Maybe in your sheltered area of your team at work, you don't necessarily get that exposure to. But now you're exposed to so many more people working on things that you get to learn a lot more. I feel like you would be developing these connections too, industry-wise, you know, like with, with other people and other teams. People now that when you go back to a conference that you're like, hey, I know this person. I've, I, you know, I've mostly, you know, done it through, you know, the push and pull of uh, commits and things like that. But potentially those kind of connections are, are always a, a great part of uh, being part of the community. Oh, for sure. I, I had a few of those this year at a Euro SciPy, and it's it's very interesting to go from always interacting with that little icon on GitHub <laughs> and then actually seeing the person and yeah, having yeah. them come up to you like, oh, I remember, like, I know you, you were, yeah. And just, it's, it's very nice to be able to meet people in, in person on that. And then you get kind of to talk a little bit about more of, the direction of things and, and why certain choices were made that maybe can't fully be explained in the issues uh, that go on in GitHub. Yeah. It's great. It's great to meet people like that. Yeah, he's great. There's a great, good list of uh, benefits and things people can kind of think about, like, you know, why would they want to get involved? Building AI apps comes with a lot of challenges. Many developers rely on open source code and software to jumpstart work. If you're building an AI app, save time and effort by visiting intel.com slash edge AI. Here you can get open source code snippets and sample apps for a head start on your app. Intel.com slash edge AI gives you access to real world AI applications that can help you accelerate and optimize your models and deploy faster. You can also tap into GitHub notebooks for a range of applications from computer vision, to generative AI. Check it out at intel.com slash edge AI. So maybe we can talk a little bit about diving into the ways that people can get involved. And we already mentioned one, the, the idea of sprints. And I'm fascinated by sprints. I, I've wanted to be able to take part, but it's it is a bit of an investment <laughs> of time, um, and um, so I'm trying to figure out if that's something that I can I can do. And I know that uh, some conferences even allow like a virtual type of thing, so maybe you could give some feedback on that too. 
briefly, like, could you just kind of describe, we've mentioned on the show the, the idea that it's a good entry point, and I've talked to Tanya Allard on the show about her organizing around diverse sprints for diverse beginners, trying to get more people that have never contributed involved in open source, and and this is a good way to get going. But what's it like on the ground? I guess maybe going from even like, okay, how do you sign up and sit down and get started and so forth, if you if you don't mind kind of walking somebody through it? Sure. I'm happy to share. I'll share what my first experience was, uh, maybe a little bit of my second. I've only done it twice. Okay. I have never done it virtually, so I can't, uh, okay. I can't speak to that. I do feel like it it would not be the same. Uh, I'm sure you can get close, but I don't think it would be the same. And I, and you'll kind of understand why when I walk you through kind of how it goes. So yeah, cool. So my first one was, and I have this in the article as well, um, EuroPython 2022. And the way they organize, and this will vary by conference. So either you have some sort of thing where, you, I mean, you do have to sign up and that's part of with the, the conference registration. Okay. But there could be something like maybe the last day of the conference, they have people who are maintainers of different libraries come up and just quick lightning talk type thing. This is my project. This is what we do. This is the kind of issues we're hoping to work on during the sprint. Okay, cool. So there's there's a introduction of the projects that are available yes. and they want to tell you like kind of what we're looking to do. Yeah. And, and sometimes that might just be in the form of a website. And usually they will tell you if they have beginner-friendly issues. Okay. So you kind of get an idea. If something doesn't and maybe it's like, you know, you need to be working on, you know, C internals, then you might know, okay, that's that's not going to be where I go. I've never used that library before and I don't know how to do that. So okay. you might hear someone say, well, we're looking to work on our documentation. So that could be a, a good thing. It is kind of hard when you hear a lot of names and some of them maybe aren't spelled as intuitively as you would think or just remembering all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's such a common thing. <laughs> but I think the key thing to listen for is either a library you're very familiar with already as in you use frequently or something that says beginner-friendly and sounds interesting. Okay. Don't treat beginner as in like you've never coded before, which it could be, Right. but it also just means that you are not an expert on the library. Sure or what's going on underneath. So, Or the process of contributing. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's, yeah. it's going to be all different definitions on beginner. And, and you shouldn't really worry if you haven't contributed before because that's the point of the sprints is that you have a lot of resources there with you to help you actually make that first contribution. So you just have to okay. stick with it enough to get to the point where that does happen. Yeah. So then when the, the sprints start, you usually have different teams... Actually, I realized I lied. I've been at three of them. Uh So (laughs) all all in person. But you have uh, different teams will be maybe in different rooms or different sections of different rooms. So you should go in with the idea that I want to work with this project. Okay. And you'll go and find that project. You're picking your team you want to sit down with. (laughs) Exactly. You pick the team. The teams don't pick you. You pick the team. So it's it's a bit more inclusive that way. Yeah. And... The, usually will be the maintainers will be there first. So you already have a point of contact. If this is someone who actually has like push access and merge okay. like, approval access right. that they can help you with what's going on. They can give you like an in-person PR review so they can write wow. whatever they okay. say, but they can also tell you, oh, here's what's going on and here's how you need to fix. And that's something that you do not 
you do not obviously do not get when you're working asynchronously. And I feel like it would be a lot harder virtually, although not impossible. Yeah. You just can't have someone come and type things on your keyboard virtually, which you might need if you're <laughs> struggling with something. It's going to be a lot more time delayed um, yeah. also. Yeah. And I personally, so I had a fantastic experience with the, the scikit-learn team there. Okay. I worked with the two maintainers on there and I was, they came, usually, so usually what happens is the maintainers will look through the backlog ahead of time, right? Because they have to come up with an idea. What do we want to accomplish from these sprints? Yeah. And when that's done in, in a helpful way for everybody, that m- means that like they've picked aside these are the however many issues we want, we're pulling aside, we want to work on, we're going to support you on. Okay. Okay. And for this particular sprint, uh, Scikit-Learn had identified one on NumPy doc, doc string style compliance. Okay. For doc strings across their whole library. And there was another one that was um, validation of the parameters that were actually going in. And, and okay. So it's two separate processes. One was really not touching code, but just understanding what the code was doing and writing the doc strings and handling, oh, this doc string's malformed, these things are in the wrong order, and then understanding what was going on, fixing it, okay. running their tests, whatever. Yeah. So something like that is great for a beginner to start with, right? Because you get to see the code base, you get to go and find the files, which can be a challenge on its own. So how are the files structured? Where do I find this class that I'm supposed to work with? How do I test that what I did works? Okay. What's your process for making a PR? What should the branch be called? What should the commit message uh, be, right? Yeah, okay. So there's all kinds of things that usually there's a there's a guide for all this, but it can be a lot to read. And sometimes the guide to get you set up might not work on your machine, which has happened to me before. Mm. And guess what? That's now your first PR. Fix the documentation. <laughs> let's, fix the, let's fix the guide. <laughs> I've so had that many times. Uh, appropriate. Okay. Exactly. You know, I mean, this is like little things where you miss or there's a typo, you, you see something and it just you can just fix these things as you go. So... I did uh, a few of those and I ended up at one where I couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. Mm. I was following directions and the NumPy doc thing is telling me that the doc string needs to end with a period and I'm looking at it. The maintainer's looking <laughs> at it. We see it's ending in a period. There's a period there. <laughs> and you know, that moment where you're, you're going crazy, I, there's a period. How is it telling me that? And yeah. obviously your computer is not gaslighting you. There's definitely is something different there and ended up removing the code, putting, doing it all again. And then seeing that what must've been the difference was there was a trailing space after that period. Okay. And so I was just curious, you know, if, if it took so long to find that there clearly had to be a better way to not have that happen in the first place. Yeah. So I started asking the maintainers, how do you have that not happen? And then one of the maintainers, Oh, you shouldn't solve pre-commit. We have hooks that check against that. Mm. I was like, oh, like that was a, a light bulb moment for me. I was like, how have I not done this before? And then I looked into it afterwards. It was very, very easy to set up. Okay. I brought it to my team at work. I started getting really into it. I brought it to other libraries and open source. And someone's like, why aren't you using pre-commit yet? <laughs> and so almost, <laughs> and that became more You're the evangelist. <laughs> um, kind of, yeah. And, <laughs> and it even led to a point where I was thinking about, like, let's bring this NumPy doc validation to what we do at work. Because we also use, in my team, NumPy doc style. Okay. And the way that Scikit-Learn was doing it was running 
basically a testing script against it. And I was like, wouldn't it be great if this was part of the pre-commit, like another pre-commit check? So I ended up... To do the, to do the test? Yeah, to do the test. Well, not even their okay. test, but actually just being more native to what NumPy doc validation does. Okay. So I ended up building something internally, but then I got approval to approach NumPy doc about actually contributing to their library. And they were really, really interested in it. Turns out that I had to rewrite the entire thing because it didn't necessarily work in an external uh. way, which is more about how pre-commit works than anything else. But I learned a lot from that and then rewrote the entire thing. And now it is officially merged upstream and part of NumPy doc. So those two main things that I contributed to and learned about from scikit-learn ended up leading to tons more open source contributions in other libraries. So I think there's definitely a snowball effect from just the things that you can learn, maybe not necessarily even what you're working on, but just from like rubbing elbows with people who are working on this stuff all day long in, in a public space, you learn about maybe something you should have in your IDE, a new setting or an extension that would be great to have something like pre-commit. So you're exposed to something outside of your work bubble, which is really enriching. I want to clarify something that I, and this is just me not working in the data science space as, as much. I'm familiar with a variety of documentation styles that we've covered at real Python. And I, I feel like this is another one in the sense that I, you know, I'm familiar with like, I don't know, the Google documentation style, or there's like a handful of other ones that are out there as far as like sort of style guides. And I'm guessing that's what this NumPy doc is. It's like, it's it's done in a a specific style across all of NumPy's stuff. I don't know if it reaches into pandas then too or not, or. Yeah, I think it does. I think it's, it's more of a a PyData realm. Okay. But it, it, it's named. I find it, it a little more readable. Okay, it comes from NumPy, and it's part of like a, the NumPy org on on GitHub. Okay, good. All right, that, that's good to know because I I think that probably would be a good area of if you're not familiar with it and you're you know creating your own packages and so f- so forth, or you're within an organization, it's always nice to. Not always, but it, it can be nice not to to start from scratch <laughs> and yeah. create your own set of rules. You can follow your own, you know. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. So. And what's nice is it, it's compatible with Sphinx. So if you, okay, you know, yeah, Sphinx to I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Other just sort of like really banal things, like okay, you're bringing your own computer. <laughs> definitely, definitely. You'd be surprised how many people don't do that, though. But oh, okay. But yeah, you you don't want to have the fact that you can't change some setting on your computer be the reason you can't contribute, right? Okay. So. Yeah, and then you're, you know, usually conferences are pretty good about having internet connection, and then you know you're having to potentially build the project on on your machine, like you said, for doing tests and 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 so forth. Maybe documentation maybe wouldn't require that as much, depending on how it's compiled and put together i i, I would I, and that may vary but in most cases is that what's happening you're needing to really you know structure the whole project and and, and uh, have it ready to go so i think it it again depends on what you're going to be contributing okay right so for example if you are contributing maybe to like numpy and you're working on documentation you only really need to have a way to install NumPy, even with pip, okay. and check. Can, 
can I run this function? What does it do when I give this input? What does it do when I give that input? Okay, here's my example, right? You don't actually need to tear apart the library and the internals to get to that. Okay. But if you're working on a new feature, then yeah, you have to have be able to build the whole thing. Yeah, okay, cool. So you mentioned now that you have three experiences and you kind of dug into to one of them. You know, I gave you some of these questions in advance to kind of like think about them. And one of them, one, I was wondering if if this would be a good question or not. I haven't been to any European conferences. And so I'm wondering, like, is there a slightly different differences you notice compared to, say, a U.S.-based one? I'm, I would guess the the diversity of the attendees as far as like the nationalities would be very, very different. But are there other things to notice that were different about, say, a, a Euro conference or that kind of sprint compared to like you did sprints at PyCon US, it sounded like. Yeah, I've done it at um, two European conferences and once at PyCon US. Okay. But I'm going to give you a general thing that's different about the conferences in general. Okay. And it's the coffee. <laughs> I would guess better, or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so so I'm an espresso drinker, uh, okay, which always makes coffee breaks at U.S. conferences sad time for me uh. because I don't want any part of that coffee. <laughs> but in Europe, every conference, big or small, they're wheeling out Nespresso or the equivalent machines, uh, okay, and you have a proper espresso ready to go. <laughs> and quote unquote. Icon, <laughs> PyCon in the the PyCon CZ, yeah, the, in Prague this year I went. I actually had food poisoning when I had to present, but that's oh, no. that's another story. Okay, but during the conference they had even better than espresso machines. They actually had multiple stations with baristas, mm. and they would you would actually make like pick which drink you. I think they had three different types. So you can get like an espresso macchiato and they would actually, everything with the latte art and all. Oh, wow. On demand. That's pretty, pretty elaborate. <laughs> and you would never see that. Yeah, I would say that's like, uh, needs to be on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think also like differences in just maybe even food standards. I feel like maybe it's a little higher of sure. expectation and the venues are usually very different. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to like, you don't necessarily have as big of uh, venue options. Yeah, the convention halls, U.S. convention halls are kind of so multi-purpose and kind of big. I would imagine that the European spaces... Well, I went to PyCascades, and that was on a more of a university campus, and, and I liked it. I mean, it was a way more intimate kind of spaces and uh, different kinds of spaces as opposed to the big halls of a... You know, I think of like Comic Con or something like that. You know, these big spaces. You yeah. know, um, but yeah, okay. It, where where are the conferences usually in Europe like are typically at? They're not in quite the big conference halls or convention halls. No, they're usually not. I think just because they're smaller in scale. I think something like EuroPython is still going to be in a, a big bigger venue just because it's a it's like the PyCon US equivalent. Okay, but something maybe like a PyCon Portugal, right or uh, like the one I just mentioned, or Italy, they're going to be in smaller because it's just not as many attendees. Yeah. And okay. many do have it at universities because also it's more economical to do that. Yeah. But it is it is very nice, especially when I do a workshop teaching in that kind of a setting. I feel like it puts people 
in the right frame of mind, you know, to be... This is a classroom. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Potentially, or a lecture hall. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Were there differences in the sprints? I feel like it might not be PC even say what this Okay. Is. That's fine. <laughs> I think it's just more on like, I think, and it also comes down to like levels of organization. The more times you've done something, the more smooth something is. Sure, sure. Different cultures about arriving on time early. Okay. When other, when the participants show up, do participants show up on time? This is all different cultures you have kind of to expect that people might be late. People might be really early. Sprints may right. vary. Sprints yeah, may vary. totally. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you probably can get a good gauge of that by how much information is provided in advance of it. Are they go- coming up and talking about, you know, what we're looking for con- contributions, those kinds of things. And that might give you that heads up before you sit down. I think one thing, one thing that also matters too is, is, and I've noticed this just from Euro sci-fi in particular, there were so many maintainers okay. at that conference. Yeah. Like the maintainer to non-maintainer ratio was was probably... Very high. Yeah. Impressively <laughs> high. And I, it was something I wasn't sure. I was very surprised. But it was almost like you walked in, you couldn't throw a stone without hitting one. Okay. And that's not something you'd see elsewhere. But it also could be the space. So I felt like it was a lot... It, just because of the, 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 the group that, that forms it, it's very on the data science library side. Yeah. So you had like scikit-learn, you had pandas, you had polars, matplotlib. So you, you kind of had a lot of those groups. Yeah. Whereas if there's another group that has a lot of things that are all US-based, you might find more of those options. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. At PyCon US Yeah, Sprints. that you would get, if you're interested in, you know, contributing to data science type packages, then a data science conference is going to be way more more likely to have it than per se a, a, a PyCon, which would be... Well, so also, I, I think it's more of like a regional thing because I think okay. many of those maintainers are actually based oh, okay. in Europe. Yeah. So it's you're more likely to, to bump into them. Okay, great. Over there. We can kind of just travel through some of it, but I think that's really great information. And it sounds like, it sounds like you agree that it's a good entry point um, if you are able to travel to a conference and do that sort of stuff that uh, it, it's something that it, you had a good experience across the three times you did it. Oh yeah, all three times it was good experience. All three times I worked on different libraries. So the first time, as I mentioned, I did Scikit-Learn. The second time, uh, we had some Bloomberg packages over there. So I worked on Membray and PyStack. Okay. And I got to work pretty much entirely on my pre-commit stuff. That oh, okay. The maintainers there were like, "We want to use pre-commit," and I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm here for you." <laughs> <laughs> so that was what I worked on for two days, and I and I did. A ton of progress and it was that was like a big thing that i had that knowledge right yeah and this last time i worked on pandas in um a euro site so okay so then you know kind of digging into some of the other ways we've touched on a bunch of them one is contribute examples to documentation which i think is great i've definitely champion that across the podcast and episodes and stuff like that by asking different maintainers and stuff like that, that we're looking for people to help. They're like, yeah, yeah, that that would be a really great way. Documentation is a good way entering just generally. But but examples, I think, are fantastic. And that's something that I feel like I would be pretty strong at as a teacher, because I feel like sometimes examples aren't always exemplifying what you can do with the package. I feel like different people have different use cases for things and and sometimes a teacher might have 
a, a broader sense of entry points to a package and ways that things might be used and construed. And so that's why I look at that would be a, a neat way to kind of get involved. I don't know. I'm always interested in demonstrating things. <laughs> I think I think that's fantastic, especially because many times when you're trying to just, oh, we need some documentation, the examples that might be there might be rather contrived. Yeah. And to the point where like, yeah, there's an example, but it's not easy to use that to even figure out how you would use this. Right. Like telling a story with the example as opposed to exactly. it being filled with foobar XY kind of stuff, <laughs> which is so common, exactly. you know, and, and I, I get it. And I, I don't know. I always rail against those things. I, I, I was like, let, let's let's do something going beyond that. And again, with like a visualization, that's an easy way to, to kind of get into it. But you might have to work a little bit harder on some, depending on the other packages that you work on. Yeah, I was just going to side note on all of that. I have the same uh, feeling about all of that as you do. Oh, and that okay, is good. why all of my content, <laughs> my book, my workshops, I do not do any of that. And I focus on actually using real world things nice. for that exact reason. It's not helpful when you're new to something and you don't have a meaningful example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I struggle against it. You know, there's a lot of documentation, in my opinion, that's very, very... I don't know, contrived, you know, in, in a way. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is an example of what you can do with it. And it kind of gets the idea across, but it's very easy for someone who's, I don't know, if you're glancing through documentation, which is an often thing, as opposed to reading it <laughs> from top to bottom, you go to examples. And if the example is not exemplary of actual use cases, it's, it's like, uh, this is just more noise again. And it, it, it's like, you want the example to like pop out and say, oh, a use case. And here we're doing things with it. And yeah, so I don't know that I think it's a big thing. So I, I agree with you. <laughs> but I mean, even worse, you get to that page and there's no example. Ugh, yeah. And then you have to figure out exactly how it works. So there's multiple ways that right. that contribution can be made towards, towards the example. Yeah. Cool. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's titled Documenting Python Projects with Sphinx and Read the Docs. The course was written and presented by Christopher Trudeau. And as the course instructor, he takes you through how to write your documentation with Sphinx, how to structure and style your document with restructured text syntax, incorporate your code comments and doc strings into your documentation automatically using the PyDoc plugin how to host your documentation on Read the Docs, and how updates to the project's GitHub page can also update your docs. The course includes additional resources for you to learn even more about documenting your project with Sphinx and Read the Docs, including a cheat sheet for using RST syntax for Sphinx. RealPython video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions, check out the video course. You could find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. I had Mike Fiedler on. He's, he's working on security for PyPI. Hired on as a security developer in residence. And we talked a little bit about, he had written some stuff and done a, a podcast episode about open source and getting involved. And he mentioned a site called Good First Issues, which 
<laughs> kind of looks like good first tissues. <laughs> if you're not reading it right. And we found two different sites. There's one that's like goodfirstissues.com and goodfirstissues.dev. They're slightly different things, but the idea of of you don't have anywhere to start, you don't have any sort of context, uh, but you want to browse for open issues that are out there. I think they're kind of useful in in a way just to kind of maybe even get an idea. Those ones are so are not Python specific. They're they're you know just open source generally, and so you can narrow it. You can say, oh, I'm looking at uh, oh, well, let me switch the button to say Python and and so forth, and you can kind of see there. Was that did you have an experience of of going through and looking at that stuff? Was that kind of where you found that first example that we talked about? I've actually never used okay. those sites. I have not even heard of that one. I have. I'm blanking on the name. I came across a different one, which is a similar thing. Okay. I think the problem for me, at least with something like that, is it becomes that there's too many things to now look at. There's all these libraries which say that they have all these issues. Sure. And you still don't yet know if, is it recently active, which is a big criteria for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What's the license? Yeah. And are they responsive? Is this a massive library? So it goes back to the things that you listed at the beginning of your article, like yeah. that you, you like if you want to be involved in this, because you want that communication. If it's not, if other people aren't involved, exactly, you're just like sending something out into the void, and you're like, okay, well, great. Mm-hmm. So okay, that makes sense. And and you know the big thing is when you have to look through those issues. Yeah, you have a bunch that are good first issue, which you can find on your own just going to the repo. Okay. But you don't necessarily know at that point if it's claimed if you're using these aggregators, mm. right? You're going to still need to look at the individual thing to see, okay. oh, someone claimed this three months ago and there's already two open PRs. So two <laughs> people have been working on this. Yeah. So kind of what I what I did was, and I think there's some something to be said for scrolling to the back end of that backlog, right? The oldest things in the backlog, if they're still relevant. Yeah. Okay but nobody has picked them up. People aren't, it's like the whole Google thing, or you Google and you stay on page one, you rarely go to page two. Let alone 31. If you're at the end of the, <laughs> yeah, if you're at the end of the issue backlog, then perhaps you found something that everyone's forgotten about. It's buried and no one looked at. Yeah, okay. And you can kind of, you can easily scroll through and see the number of comments without opening individual issues. So you can go in, Let's say you you there's a library you're passionate about or you you want to contribute to you you like its philosophy or the or the maintainers behind it. Sure. So you can kind of go there. You know it's active. You know they're releasing, and go to the issues, filter to good first issue. Okay. And then just scroll down, find one that doesn't have comments, on uh, it. or maybe it just has one. Maybe it's a clarification. Yeah. And then see. Okay, does this make sense? Is this something I want to work on? Do they still want to do this? So you have to find ways to to find that needle in the haystack to, to look quicker through those. Yeah. I think maybe, and I think you maybe talk about this also, but it should be something that you're interested in. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Definitely look at, is it, is it something you use? Cause then there's this vested interest. Like you said, like, kind of like, you know, I want to fix that bug cause I've been seeing it. Mm-hmm. Are there times that you would venture outside of that? You know, or is, does it make way more sense to work on something that you feel like, oh, I'm definitely going to use this and uh, be involved in it and want to have some personal ownership, I guess? For I guess for me, if I have no passion or interest in it, then I 
I won't be able to motivate myself to do it. I'd rather do something that fills me. And I feel like you can still, if there's something new that you don't know yet that you want to get into, that's where I think that the documentation, the examples come. So not being familiar shouldn't bar you from it, but it's probably going to be very challenging to find a good first issue and be able to do it if you have no exposure and you don't have the maintainers next to you like you are in a sprint. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And then you kind of dig into identifying and fixing a bug, which we've kind of touched on there. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that process. Um, if there's some specific things you'd like to dig into there. Uh, I think one very important thing uh-huh. is when you bump into a bug, Yeah, it might not actually be a bug. It could be right? something could, in your setup, it uh, could, per se. It could be your setup. It could be maybe you're not using the latest version where they've already fixed it. Yeah. Maybe this is due to some change in the underlying logic that they've decided is the direction they're going in. So uh, okay. it's not something you can just blindly fix. So you have to, in that case, be vi- this is where you have to be very... You have to acknowledge other people's time in a sense, right? You don't want to put in the 15th issue for the same something that people have already reported and they've commented on. Don't waste people's time. Sure. So when you do see that something's wrong, make sure you can reproduce it on the main branch at that current point in time. Is it still there? If it is, check, is there already an issue for this? If there isn't, you have to check closed too, because it may have been discussed that this isn't, this is not a bug. This is a feature. Exactly. (laughs) So make sure that that happens. But when you put, if you see that no one else has reported and you've confirmed it's still there and it still feels wrong, you can put in the issue and say, I think I found a bug. Here's how to reproduce it. Very important. Yeah. And say, I'm, you know, I'm willing to work on the fix for this if you guys agree this is a bug. Okay. And then you wait. If they're, they triage it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you want them to triage it. Okay. They're going to be like, this is definitely a bug, and we're, we're very happy to fix this, because they might not get to it for a while either. But if you're willing to put in their work, they can continue working on their main plan for the project. Sure. And then you can help. Okay, nice. The last one you have, which is probably the more, I, I don't know what to call it, intense, you know, more uh, challenging. <laughs> uh, it's like okay. you're, you're, you're leveling up. It's like I'm, I... I, I have an idea for a new feature for this thing. And you are, you already explained your process with that, with the the lines, adding the things to the to the graphing library, which is great. Yeah. And in a way that was a new feature, but it also was a, an issue, I think. Somebody, they, like you said, was like a to-do. Yeah, so I, I would, for this category, classify the NumPy doc pre-commit hook. Would be more in that. Okay. Proposing a new feature. Because it was not anywhere in their backlog. Okay. It was something that I had done separately, which you don't necessarily have to do at first and then propose. You can have some idea for something, yeah. but you have to put it in the issue. You might have an idea and you might think it's great and it might be like the exact opposite of what they have as the vision for the library, yeah. right? Or it might conflict with something else or it might just not be something that they want to deal yeah. with at the it's moment. diverging way too far from what their mission yeah. or whatever is. And then at that point, I mean, you have to decide... You could still do it and do a fork or do however you want to approach that. But obviously you'd have more support and use for it if it were in the the main (laughs) library. Right. So it also might 
not be in the exact form that you imagine it. So maybe they like it, but they want to tweak these three pieces about it and they want it different. Yeah. And then you still have the option to not do it. Obviously you're not, you know, there's no contract signed and you have to do it, <laughs> but you kind of have that back and forth. There's maybe a little bit of a scoping discussion of what it's going to do. And you have to be comfortable that when you do put in that, that PR that you've made the feature, how you see it, yeah. that it needs to then mold to what goes with that project. Yeah. And you might have to make changes and tweak things to fit with it. Yeah. You're going to have to potentially have feedback and, and accept it. And, exactly. and yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And I feel like that one is also, that one relies the most on understanding the library. Cause you can't, you, you can't know what's missing if you don't really understand what's there. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and proposing something that's just way in the left field is okay. You don't understand what we're trying to do here. Exactly. <laughs> like that's a whole other project or something. Yeah. So I want to kind of dig a little bit into your own projects, not necessarily working on, you know, contributing to other open source things, but something that you've worked on on your own. What kind of process do you go through when you start to develop your own personal projects? You have one that you wrote about called Data Morph, which I'm wondering, kind of chicken and egg thing, was it that you wanted to talk about the concepts behind it and you created the project or vice versa, you know, which, which came first? So it was more like I wanted to have a really impactful visual aid for my Pandas workshop. Okay. So in the Pandas workshop, we, I mean, because just the nature of Pandas, it's a lot about the wrangling of the data. Yes. And very few people even know that you can plot with it, but you can't do data analysis without visualizing your data. But there's that tendency of when someone's new, they're like, all right, I know all this wrangling, we're done. We have everything we need, <laughs> and you don't. Yeah. So I like I wanted to have a very impactful visual to go there to just illustrate, like, yeah, we did all that, but it's not enough. So... I had remembered the, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Datasaurus Dozen research from Autodesk based based on the original Anscombs Quartet. So four different data sets. Yeah, I've, ta- I've talked about the Anscombs Quartet uh, a, a couple times. We were used yeah. it in reference to uh, one of the video courses we had. The ways that uh, <laughs> summary statistics are not necessarily going to always get you all the way there. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So, so those four summary, so four uh, data sets have the same summary statistics. The data source doesn't was a project from Autodesk where they build on top of that and they have different shapes. So they have like a dinosaur, which is the data source and some other shapes. And I had this idea, like, wouldn't it be really cool if the, if I can get a panda and have it turn into a dinosaur? Yeah. And I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> but, I got, <laughs> but, but I was like, the first step is actually reproducing this research. Okay. And at that point, I did realize, yes, this could be an interesting talk, but it's actually very hard to get that talk accepted into conferences. So hmm. it's interesting, but I guess not in the right audiences that I've been trying it at. Yeah, that might be a good conversation to have it with you at a later time. It's like, you know, like what yeah. what seems to work as far as proposing things and, and ways to... You have to be a promoter <laughs> in a way. Yeah, I, you do. This is actually a separate article idea I have. So okay. at, at some point, we'll, we'll definitely circle back on this. Yeah, that sounds good. But yeah, so I had that idea. And eventually, I got to reproduce it with the panda. But then it also occurred to me that there's this is a big problem. People think, and I saw this just poking around on social media, 
people are like, oh, so there's something special about that dinosaur, some special property about the way the points are laid out. Yeah. The same thing with Anscombe's Quartet. Right. And that's just simply not true. And even now, if I have this panda, it's going to be now, oh, the panda joins the ranks. There's something special about that panda. <laughs> right. And I wanted to make sure that that cannot happen. So this is m- me. Like, this is a myth. Yes, you need to dispel exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> this is me contributing that to the world of people learning data, about anything about data, that okay. this is anything. And if this were a package, instead of people hacking away and trying to understand this research code, it was a package that was you know, properly built published to PyPI, to Conda Forge, had testing, had documentation, all the things that the research didn't have, right? So that's sure. contributing on top of that, making it easier to add new things. So I personally learned so much doing this. And that's also interesting from a standpoint of just even talking about too. So, but I wanted, I wanted this to be able to use in a teaching circumstance. So I mean, you can even think there could be something where everyone's like, okay, make your own data set and see this. Because it's almost like yeah. seeing for, the seeing is believing, seeing for yourself that, yes, this data set I just made up also does this. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think I think we linked to it in PyCoders also um, in the past because it was kind of a neat idea. And again, it, it's sort of like stunning to see like all the data points <laughs> creating these images that are like, oh, wow, completely different. Like I think you had like a happy Easter one, <laughs> which is pretty fun. So. Yeah, that was that was how yeah. I announced it. I, I shared an yeah. Easter greeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And it's interesting that that seems to be a bit of your process as far as writing and I wonder if that helps you again, that maybe this is that other conversation with developing these things for a conference talk. Like if you have something that's already been written that you can say, I've already thought this out and so forth. And and this is what I plan to talk about. Is that part of what goes into it? I, I would definitely think so. I think part of what helps me develop the content also just relates to the experience of having written a book. Okay. And having to understand what works for you as far as organizations stuff goes. Okay. So personally, I'm big on to-do lists and I have, you know, to-do lists for many different <laughs> aspects of my life. And I, I'm recently trying to figure out even a better way to even organize, you know, at the meta level across everything. I've been trying out Notion and so far I'm not very sure about exactly what needs to happen, but I, I, I do like what I've been able to do so far. Okay. I feel like at least it's it's a little easier to see kind of the bird's eye view of where everything is and how they relate, which is nice. Yeah, there's lots of camps as far as note-taking tools. There's like Obsidian yeah. and Notion and <laughs> lots of ways to do I mean, it. Yeah. I just went with the first one that people yeah, were yeah, suggesting. Yeah. No, like, that's I, I kind of had one. a breaking yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, ever Evernote's gone, so. <laughs> yeah. And and for me, it's what I one lesson I really learned when I was writing the book was even just having like a high level outline is not enough to actually write. So I even mentioned earlier when we were talking about this article that I had those five points and I had under each of those five points a specific example and a couple sentences. And that that was more than I would have done like before I had started writing the book. Oh, okay. The equivalent of what I had before writing the book would have been five ideas, here are the five ideas, and then left it, which is nowhere to start. Yeah. Right. So more of the breadcrumb style, like leave enough where it's almost just like rewording the sentences and filling it in and then making it cohesive. So it's kind of the same process you have when you're developing something. You 
have a big idea for something and you have to figure out how can you break this apart into small pieces and how do the pieces arrange, what pieces need to happen first, and then what goes after that. Leaving to-do notes in, in code, this do, you know, this, oh, yeah, this needs exactly. to be done. It's currently got a big pass yeah. in it. <laughs> so Yeah, and, and, and just being able to see everything also together, even when you have the smaller ones, and then rearranging has been very helpful. Like, oh, this needs to happen first or last. And Yeah. Yeah, but big on the to-do list, and people have also said ruthless prioritization is a big thing. <laughs> yeah. Because obviously when you have a lot of to-do list, you have to decide which which pile you're taking things off of first. Yeah, just because it's written down next doesn't necessarily... <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like what needs to happen right now. And taking advantage of those little bits of time where you do have something. When you do have something broken out enough, it becomes a lot easier to sit down even for an hour or two and actually make progress towards the end goal. But when you don't have that, you're just like overwhelmed. Where do I start? I don't have enough time. And then you keep thinking that. And then by the end, when you're actually ready to start, the time's up. Yeah, yeah. So. That's good. That makes sense. And it makes sense that those skills were honed through <laughs> creating a book. I would imagine that's quite quite the process. But my my co-host Christopher is in the process of writing his first book and it, it's definitely been a journey. He, he talks my ear off <laughs> about his struggles from time to time. He's doing a book about Django. And you know, I swore I would not do another one when I finished it. Uh-oh. And here I am, I've done two editions and I, I've been collecting ideas for a while. And this is, this is the preview I'll give you, Okay. but no one, no dates. So no one can hold me to it. All right. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but I am, I am working on, I do want to write another one, not, Okay. Not pandas related. Okay. That's something very, very different. But so I'm, I'm back in, and I think it's all right. Watch this I space. Think, I do realize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I do realize. I, I do. I do enjoy writing. It's just you mentioned before, like the perfectionist side of it, where I, I want to craft that message to make sure it's right, which makes it a labor of love. <laughs> yeah, you got to get it complete. Well, I wonder if being able quote-unquote able to make a second edition uh helps with the perfectionism the idea that hey this can be improved later that i'm not gonna have to kill myself to make it the end all be all in the first edition i think what helped me there is the idea that no matter how many times i read through it i was never gonna find all the typos okay because it's just it's just impossible you get the fatigue your brain fills in what actually isn't there yeah so when I did start writing the second edition, the first thing I did was actually read the first edition, which I had sworn not to open. I did not open it until that day <laughs> happened. Because I'm like, I don't want to see the typos and I don't want to be thinking about it. Uh, it's like mixing an album um, as a musician. And it's like, I've worked on this thing for how many months? I don't want to hear it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I was I was pleasantly surprised when I, when I read it. And I was actually, this, this is really a very good starting point here. I mean, I think... No matter what, when you're away from something for a while, I'm sure it's the same from the musician side. When you're away from something for a while, you come back to it. You've lived life during that time. Yeah. Your opinions have changed, sure. morphed. And so you're always going to want to change something. You're like, this. I never really liked that example. I want to change this. Or okay. this is actually not that important anymore. And also the space changes too, right? Yeah. What's important also changes. So just being, you have to be a little bit, flexible in that and you, you can't be too hard on yourself yeah you do have to know when it's it's good enough yeah but good, my good enough is still uh, a higher level than i think someone who's not a perfectionist would have it yeah 
One of the things that you mentioned, some of your reasoning behind writing a book, doing these articles, going to conferences, is trying to show up and be a representative of, hey, there are women in this industry. There are other underrepresented groups in the industry. Hey, you can do this too. And do you want to talk a little bit about your journey with that and and why you feel like it's important that you, you show up? Yeah, definitely. So my journey going to conferences and presenting, so I actually was terrified of public speaking. Sure. All my life, basically. But it was one of those things where after writing the book and seeing that you are impacting people, you just get like occasional things on LinkedIn or somewhere else where somewhere someone is, um, talking about how the book has helped them and they've learned and it's kind of like that warming feeling but it's almost like yeah you're not necessarily reaching as many people as you can if you just leave it at that so and i did want to take it to conference i wanted to conquer that fear of public speaking and during the covid times there was a data science conference the odsc one i mentioned before where they were having a virtual conference and they invited me because of the book to deliver a workshop on pandas. Yeah. And to me that felt like a good step because it was virtual, right? So no one would be seeing me. Right. And I could I could practice that. And I I mean I was terrified, but I got a little bit more comfortable doing a few other ones virtually. Then when I got to do it in person, I got to do book signing events and really talk to the people who were like coming to my stuff. I hear the transition from virtual to being in person is actually people really liked being in person because they got the, you got the room uh, in the sense that people are like, Oh yeah. Agreed. Like they're interested. You know, you got people that are paying attention and yeah. Agreed. But at the, at the point that I was with speaking, it's still scary. <laughs> it was, it would have been horrifying. And, <laughs> and <laughs> it was nice to like, cause you, I still got very nervous even talking to a black screen with like almost no feedback in the occasional question. Sure. And then, when I did first do it in person, it, when I got through it and I got the claps and people really wanted to talk and had tons of questions, I was like, okay, wow. Like, I think it's one of those things where you're so in your head that people caught that mistake I just made. Or if I say one thing wrong, they're going to realize it. And really nobody does. And no, people don't remember that. And you just have to keep going. Right. And yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a changing the way you, you, you think about it. But I've met so many people that will come up to me and, and just share their story and how they just love, they wanted to meet me or get a copy of the book just, just because they liked my story Yeah, and that yeah, yeah. they see someone that looks like them or a woman in the space. I had a woman at the book signing I did in San Francisco who was telling me how she came just from Miami to meet me and was, took a picture with me so she can send to her daughter. Oh, that's cool. And yeah, people want me to speak at, there's a, um, a school club, I think in Jacksonville where they're trying to work on the main charter of the, of the club is getting women and minorities into tech. So yeah, having that representation and seeing someone and believe me, I go to many of these conferences and I'm very aware that I'm that female, yeah, <laughs> the yeah, female sure. that's speaking or the Hispanic person that's speaking. So, but I mean, it, it feels great to be able to, to bring that, that persona, that representation to these conferences and show that everyone can do this. And that's also why I 
I prefer more of the workshop or even talk that is about teaching people something. I want people yeah. to learn because I, I, it's just so nice to see that those those lights go off in people's heads. They're like, oh, totally. I know exactly how many all the time. <laughs> right? And yeah. that to me is it's so heartwarming. And I, I love that I'm able to make that impact. And people who maybe didn't see themselves as being able to do this now do. And, and like I said, they feel comfortable asking those questions. Like, how do I do open source? Because you're talking about how that's so great. So I, it's just, it's nice to be able to make uh, a wider impact than just, you know, from the book or just from the people I meet in my day-to-day life. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. So Stephanie, I have these weekly questions I'd like to ask everybody. Uh, what's something that you're excited about that's happening in the world of Python? Uh, I think I'm going to stick with, I'm always excited about conferences and meeting uh, more people, new people around the world, um, reconnecting with... Got any planned? Well, I mean, it's it's CFP season starting, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I have a... <laughs> I got to work on uh, some, pro- some proposals. Yeah, yeah. I'm planning new some new content for this year, so I have cool. to force myself to write those abstracts. <laughs> exactly, <Again>. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, nice. Cool, yeah, I... um. I know a couple people that I've spoken to recently uh, where we all felt like, wow, we really jumped back into it <laughs> now that everything's in person and uh, feel like the need to maybe pull back just a little bit to like figure out what the balance is. Do you ever feel like it's easy to overdo it? <laughs> and, you know, so I think it's interesting, right? Because I'm very introverted. Okay. But I do really enjoy. First of all, I, I mean, I love traveling, but I just love meeting people yeah. from such different areas that have different philosophies, but that we can connect on, you know, the Python topics or yeah. the, what we're trying to learn. And there's people who have passions for something. Yeah. And that is so such a nice uh, experience each time I have it to be able to meet those people. And I... I wouldn't want to like not be able to do that or step back from that. I've met so many interesting people in so many places that yeah, I I would not give that up. It is exhausting, but I would, I, I don't think I would want to step back. Not at least not yet. Yeah. I talked to, uh, I talked to Nina Zakarenko about it and she had a term, um, at least I think that she coined the term of, uh, expovert. (laughs) (laughs) like you know getting out there and in conferences and those kinds of things and Mm. that's her chance you know she actually made like these little circuit python badges that she would have that would be like like a battery meter like this is how ready i am to sit and talk with new people right now but like if you can respect that (laughs) that my battery is a little low right now (laughs) so anyway i thought that was a, a neat idea no, I definitely feel that's true. Yeah. There's, there's, there's like, at the end of the day, you're like, I need my, my solitude, yeah. my me time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So what's something that you want to learn next? And again, this doesn't have to be programming specific. It can be, you know, anything. <sighs> I'm going to think on this one, I think. Okay. Can I think on this one? Sure. How can people follow the work that you do online? What's the best way people can follow your work, I guess? The, the best way to follow my work would be my personal website. So it's stephaniemolin.com. Okay. I'm sure we'll have a link oh, yeah. somewhere. It'll be right there um, in the show notes. Also, yeah, on uh, Twitter, I'm Stephanie Molin on Twitter and, or X. Okay. And uh, the same on LinkedIn. And there I usually post like new articles or links to stuff. 
Okay. Uh, on those two. Great. So what do you want to learn next? So I'm going to stick with languages, but spoken languages. Oh, there you go. So okay. I'm fluent in Spanish, done some French. There was a point where I was border. I guess I was conversational in French, but it was all through Duolingo and partial cheating, what I call cheating. <laughs> okay. As in, you don't know the word, say the Spanish word, but with a French accent. Uh, they're close. Romance <laughs> and, languages, yeah. <laughs> you usually get away with it. Yeah. But I really, I mean, I would love to, to get back into that and get it better, but I think I'm more passionate about actually learning Italian. Oh, okay. I've always liked more the way Italian sounded, and I only learned French because I was working at a French company and it was a little okay. bit more useful at that level. But I just love, I just love the way Italian sounds. And <laughs> I saw this video. I'm sorry. I, I started laughing um, because it was of a Husky and it had an Italian accent. <laughs> it was like kind of funny that, that the dog would have like a different, like vocalizing type of sound <laughs> when it was like the woman kept talking Italian or speaking Italian oh, to the funny. dog and the dog would be like, rrr, rrr. it was just sounded so much. It was, <laughs> it, it was weird. <laughs> well, you, the thing is you don't know if it's actually real. I right? know, so. I know, but I'll, I'll, I'll include a link. <laughs> People can check out the video. could be a fake, but it's just like, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Cool. We need to conduct an experiment. Yeah. Do you, um, is, is that partly for travel purposes or have you been to Italy? I've been to Italy multiple times. Ah. I mean, I, so I've actually been before I was very good with Spanish and also after. I think once after, if you just, you're there long enough, mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter that you're not speaking Italian. Yeah. The Spanish is usually enough. But I've always just liked the way it sounded. Yeah. And growing up, because, so I am, I'm half Hispanic. Yeah. And, I struggled getting to the point of being fluent only because it half. And so I wasn't really speaking it at home on a day to day basis. Right. And, but we had alternating years of Italian and Spanish. And so I kind of had to like not store the Italian too much because I wanted to actually focus on the Spanish mm. when I was, you know, not lose it because it was weird that you had to alternate. So when I finally, when I'm now at the point where like I have that language, I now want that other one. So, like I said, I always just like the way it sounded. It just sounds like happiness. Yeah, like you're yeah. always happy, a sing song type of thing. I don't, to me, French doesn't, doesn't sound that way. Yeah. It has a different kind of tonality to it, but yeah, I agree. It definitely, <laughs> you can always sing something in, in, in Italian. Exactly. <laughs> the, the words all end with these beautiful vowels. <laughs> so that's cool. Well, Stephanie, thanks so much for coming on the show. It, it's been fantastic to talk to you. And thanks again for having me. This is great. And remember, don't start building your AI app from scratch. Save time by visiting intel.com slash edge AI. Get open source code snippets and tools to jumpstart development and deploy faster. Go to intel.com slash edge AI. I want to thank Stephanie Mullen for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.